from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I'm delighted to be hosting today's show with Joanne Lublin, author of Earning It, Hard-Won Lessons from Trailblazing Women on Top of the Business World. Um, For those of you who may say, Joanne Lublin, I know that name. You see her all the time in the Wall Street Journal. She's an award-winning journalist and management news editor. She covers issues such as corporate governance, executive compensation, recruiting, and succession. And she writes for the journal's front page and marketplace section. As an exemplar business leader herself, she recently authored this book, which was just released on October 18th, so we're particularly excited to have her here in the studio today. Um, I just finished the book, and I have to tell you, it was an inspiring read, and it knits together interviews with present and former female CEOs from the helm of companies, little ones like Hewlett-Packard, Yahoo, Hearst Magazine, Avon, Sarah Lee, Campbell Soup, and so on. Um, And it offers really straightforward advice and examples of how women have managed to propel themselves to the top and amass enormous success, not for just themselves, but for their organizations in the process. Um, And one of those extraordinary women that's discussed in the book happens to be Joanne herself. And I was glad that she shared some of her personal stories with us along the way. Um, So Joanne, welcome to Women at Work. We're so excited to have you in the studio here today. Thank you for having me. So as I was going through the book, beautifully organized. I loved the sub-themes that were in there and the way that you organized the chapters. But there was an additional kind of thread that was going through it that really struck me by surprise. And as we're reading these stories of these resilient, gritty women who were bold and often brave, um, there's also this recurring message about restraint, picking your battles, knowing when not to fight, when to hold them and when to fold them. Right. And this really surprised me as I was reading these stories. And it also um, hit home because I thought about my own moments of when I lost because I decided to fight. So could you talk a little bit about why that's in here and why that's still so important? I think it's true for men as well as for women. Nobody's going to win every single battle. The idea is to go fully armed and fully prepared. Make sure that someone is at your back. You're not going in there on one horse. And also choosing which battles are the ones you're likely to win, because none of us is going to win every battle. It That's true. Indeed, though, as we're in the battlefield, so to speak, particularly in business settings where we're often confronted with chauvinism, an overt kind of sexism that's often thrown in our faces, um, it can be humiliating and demoralizing. Yet we heard from we, these women over and over again Almost as if if you don't have the pithy comeback, hold it. Hold it and deal with it in private. And Why was that so important for gaining power? I think to a great degree, these women recognized you can really shoot yourself in the foot, particularly when they became victims of sexual harassment early in their careers. I was really surprised that more of them did not go to HR, did not I go know, to their too. boss. But frankly, even today, as we saw in the recent scandals involving Fox, women there kept quiet, not for days, not for weeks, but for years. I know. Afraid to come out and afraid that they would be blamed for it. Exactly. I've written career columns over the years about what happens to whistleblowers, whether it's sexual harassment or anything else. It's not 
exactly a career-enhancing move. <laughs> no, unfortunately. But yet you also told stories of, um, I thought, very patient, focused ways that um, a number of these women took a particularly egregious point and moved on it. Could you talk a little bit about sure. some of those examples? Well, again, I think the sexual harassment chapter is particularly strong on that issue. And I thought the Dorit Byrne example was an excellent one. She, early in her career as a mid-manager at a retail chain, found herself face-to-face with a peer in his office in which he's propositioning her and kissing her on the lips. And he's then terrified when she reacts negatively that she's going to squeal to their mutual boss. She decided that that would not be a career-enhancing move. And so she kept quiet. But inwardly, she said she wanted to kill him. (laughs) Of course she did. But there were also some examples of where um, some of the women in that moment did not make a stink about it. But then they found a way privately to address it with the person. There's a particular story where it was completely outside of the boardroom or the conference room where it occurred. And I thought it it showed a great deal of restraint and wisdom. Could you talk a little bit about that case? Well, I'm not positive which case you mean. <laughs> um, the Carly Fiorina one is somewhat relevant. Um, again, we all know Carly. She ran for president briefly this year, but she also was previously the chief executive of Hewlett-Packard. And early in her career when she was at AT&T, again, fairly low-level manager, was propositioned by a man higher up in the food chain than her. She rejected his advances. He wanted basically to go to bed with her that night and came into the office the next day, an office she was visiting out of town. And by the time she had gotten there, he had already spread the word that they had had sex together the night before, which, of course, was a complete lie. And what she did was she went to someone in that organization, it was a Mountain Bell office, who knew her, who trusted her, who was also higher than her in the corporate hierarchy, and told him exactly what had happened. But she didn't stop there. She was in the middle of bidding on a major federal agency contract, and the guy who wanted her to go to bed with him, she just made sure he wasn't part of the process. Right. <laughs> so where she he wanted her to include him in places he really didn't belong, he got excluded from a few others. And the idea here is at the end of the day, you may have to go to a peer or someone just one level above you. Or nowadays, hopefully you can go to a senior level woman if you feel that you are being mistreated in the workplace and, and find some recourse there. Yes. You also um, told the story of um, one of the CEOs on her way up. She was um, working with a male colleague who was refusing to collaborate with her. And the advice that came out of the story was actually to figure out what he needed to be successful. And I kept reading that over and over (laughs) again in different places, that it's actually a power-boosting tactic to help someone else be successful. And I think that's particularly the case when women are supervising men. There were a number of women I interviewed who, when had men assigned to work for them, the men said, I'm not working for a woman. I've never had a woman as a boss. And in some cases, they said, I can make you more successful than you are now, or I can help you find somebody else to be your boss. In one case, this white male banker 
really wanted to be a bank officer, was assigned a black woman younger than him to be his boss. And he was never going to be an officer because he was in a training role. He wasn't in a sales role. And she said, just that, I can help you be an officer. And she did. And it changed the whole calculus. When you say sales role, there's an important distinction It's um, that I want to bring up because it also comes up often in the book, which is the importance of being in, um, responsible for profit and loss, uh, really the importance of making the money, managing the money. And having, and having measurable results. At the end of the day, businesses are in business to make money. So why is it that so many women aren't taking responsibility for P&L lines or given it? Well, in answer to the former question, Laura, I think it's because they fear that those jobs are all too consuming and that they couldn't possibly have a life, too. Those jobs are very demanding, but I think there are ways to have a life. There is no such thing as work-life balance. And in fact, (laughs) my chapter on on working mothers, it talks, calls the fact that, you know, a balancing, working mothers are not acrobats because there is no perfect balance. I loved the chapter, by the way. Um, it spoke to me because I lived that life, um, including the day you come to work with a black shoe and a blue shoe and two contacts in one eye. Um, you did that? <laughs> the two contacts, yes, actually. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Um, I was Af- so, I after was, motherhood? <laughs> after motherhood oh, yeah. and before coffee when I was putting contacts in to go run at like 5 o'clock in the morning. And I couldn't understand what was wrong. Um, in that chapter, though, one of the things you also talked about was that there are – conditions that can change around working and while being a parent that women often don't think to ask for. Correct. And that... um, And you know what? What you don't ask for, you don't get. That's true for pay as well. (laughs) Yes. So I want to come back to the pay in a minute. But in particular, when we're talking about striking that balance, um, you even talked about dialogues that people had about, could we not have 7 a.m. meetings? Right. That really can happen? Well, like I said, you know, a lot of women are afraid to raise their hand, are afraid to object, are afraid to be seen as less than committed to their job. And you know what? It's not the end of the world if you say, could we have the meeting at 8? There's a really striking example in the book of an executive who's a working mom who has a man who reports to her come into her office and get a bad performance review Mm -hmm. from her. And he starts crying. And it turns out that he's in the middle of a very messy divorce. He has to take the kids to school every morning, and he can never get there in time for her 8 a.m. meetings. And at that point, she tells him to sit down and says, you know, we can work this out. We don't have to have meetings at 8 o'clock. You can, you know, get here when it's good for you. And he got his career back on track. I don't know about his personal life. (laughs) I also think as the kids get older, different pressures come in different places. But it's bringing up this great point of men are experiencing these challenges too, especially as they become more engaged parents. And especially as the millennial generation is having children. Um, The the men want to be very active parents. I talk in the book about my son's decision to take paternity leave after his youngest was born three years ago. And what had happened was his wife changed jobs, immediately got pregnant, went to work for a a company which did not give you any maternity leave unless you worked there 12 months. The baby was born 11 months later. She was eligible for nothing. Oh, my goodness. And, And this is the other thing I find so funny because a lot of millennial women say, oh, well, you know, none of that stuff still goes on. Everybody has maternity leave. Uh, no. No. 
<clears throat> no, they don't. <laughs> and, and so her company was nice enough to give her two months off. One month was was vacation and one month uh, additional leave. But she then had to go back to work sooner than she really wanted to. She had taken four months off with their older child at a different employer. My son, on the other hand, had the opportunity to take paternity leave from his employer, which was a government agency, because he had built up so much compensation time. And so he did that. So she went back to work feeling totally guilt-ridden after our grandson was born. And then he stayed home and was totally guilt-ridden the whole two months. So both of them were guilt-ridden. He was guilt-ridden over missing work, and she was guilt-ridden over missing the baby. And and each was having the experience that the other one wanted. Exactly. Yet doing what so many families are trying to do on purpose. It's complicated to make all of these choices. It is. What was even funnier is when he would, to get exercise, go all over to Mall of America during the day with the, the newborn in his little snuggly. The, the reactions he would get from sales clerks in the stores would be, oh, isn't that nice? You're giving mommy the afternoon off. They, oh my goodness, they clearly haven't met Josh Loves, who we're a big fan of here and all the work he's done to advocate for truly engaged fathers. The woman that we're talking to about lessons from the past that are totally relevant today is Joanne Lublin, management news editor for The Wall Street Journal and author of Earning It, Hard-Won Lessons from Trailblazing Women at the Top of the Business World. So I want to go back to this question of when you ask the difficult questions and asking for what you need, because we have two different examples that came out of the book, is asking in the moment of crisis, where the man had to, at least his his woman boss was sensitive enough to say, what's going on here? Let's stop and talk. Because she had children herself. Yes, another testimony <clears throat> to how parenting makes us better supervisors. Absolutely. Um, but there's also um, a different kind of power that you can have when you make it part of your negotiation. And what are the terms of your taking a job? And that it seems like for a very long time, women have been very um, passive. Yes, passive and frightened, thinking, oh, no, no, I can't bring that up there. And I have to say, at least from personal experience, with the last three positions I've taken, two of which I reported to men, I said right from the get-go, I'm a single mom. I will always get the work done. But I need to be flexible enough. I'll work wherever I am, but I have to be there for my daughter. I'm the one who has to get her to clarinet lessons and be there for when she's sick and snow days. And they Did you say this during the job interview? Mm-hmm. Or after no, the I said, offer. I said after the offer as we were negotiating it. And um, they I was I it affirmed that I was going to work with people that I wanted to work with because they said, of course, we absolutely respect that. Um, A testimony to how thoroughly, how they put what they said into action was they equipped me with technology so that I could be functional at home or on the road or in my car at a parking lot while she's at practice for something. And so it was a, a collaborative way that we made it work, but they were open to it in the dialogue. And my friends thought I was crazy when I brought it up. But you were smart to wait until the offer was on the table. Because otherwise it could really get in the way. Right. Yeah, we've heard before from um, women who have said there's this dynamic where if it's evident that you're a parent as you're going through the job search process, you can be discriminated against, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. There's one woman who I interviewed for the book, Sandy Peterson, who when she applied and was interviewed to be a McKinsey consultant, again, this goes back several decades, she had a young 
child at the time, she knew she wouldn't get hired if she mentioned this because you have to be on the road four days a week as a management consultant. And although there were obviously men who worked there that had children, there weren't any women that she could see there who had kids. So she concealed the fact that she had a child. She got hired. Then she tried to seek support from women who worked there, and she really didn't get any because they couldn't relate to her. And fortunately, we see that changing now. I was so glad that you noted Accenture. We had had Ellen Shook on the show, and we talked about um, how they came to the decision. McKinsey. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Um, But at at Accenture, they've made, I think, a really important change of policy where um, for the first year of parenthood, the new parents, men and women, are not expected to travel. Right. And it started by recognizing um, somebody (coughs) was brave enough to speak up and say, um, can you support breastfeeding moms who are traveling like this? And to their credit, they said, wait a second. If we solve that problem, are we solving the wrong problem? And is it really that parents shouldn't have to travel during that first year? And it seemed like a very um, big picture way of solving the problem to help everybody succeed at work and life. But whose idea was it that they shouldn't travel during the first year? Was that a man or a woman's? Um, I heard the story from Ellen Shook, so I'm attributing it to the amazing women who are leading Accenture, although I could be wrong. I have no idea. (laughs) Um, One of the other examples from the book that I thought was amazing was how when a woman was confronted with her own child care problems, one of the solutions was actually to create a child care center on site Mm -hmm. and how powerful that was. Can you talk a little bit about how that worked and why it was so important? This also was Dorit Byrne, um, and the experiences obviously were separated by a number of years. She experienced the issue of who stays home with a sick child when her first son was born, and she and her husband had both had careers. But she always remembered how hard that had been for her, and when she became CEO of Charming Shops, not only created a child care center, <clears throat> but a sick child bay. That was amazing. I asked her about this actually very recently, even though she's not there anymore and hasn't been there for several years. She said that, that not only is the child care center and sick bay facility still there, but it remains a huge way of attracting and retaining men and women, especially the men. See, there's a growing power in including everybody in parenting. It's a whole new generation. And it's also going to enable their wives to stay or their partners to stay at work, which is critically important. Indeed. So one of the other things that came out in the book was um, some marvelous stories about your own marriage and your own choices. And you talk about something called your marriage contract and how you two decided to make decisions as a couple. Could you talk to us a little bit about this? Well, we got married in an era, which, of course, now seems like the Dark Ages, in which there were still a lot of laws on the book that discriminated against women. We were living in California at the time, and there was, at the time we got engaged, a court case in which a woman was separated from her husband (coughs) and relocated from San Francisco to Los Angeles, tried to register to vote, and was denied the right to register to vote because she was told that legally her domicile was where her husband lived. Oh, my God. So even if she went with her own money, signed a lease. Didn't matter. It was where her husband lived. Under California law at that time. And I had read about marriage contracts. <clears throat> they were kind of unheard of. Um, marriage contracts <clears throat> like a ketubah or marriage contracts like a prenup? Well, like a prenup. Okay. okay. 
And at that time, I was and still am a member of the National Organization for Women. So I found out who the uh, attorney was for the local now chapter in San Francisco, asked her if she could draw this up. And she said yes, and asked us to bring her items that we wanted to put into the contract. And when she was done writing it up, only one sentence remained, and it was one my then-fiancé had written, which was that household chores shall be shared equally, but not necessarily cheerfully. (laughs) I think that one's fair and reasonable. It remains in place. (laughs) You can't program cheer. Um, The insightful and... um, incredibly inspiring woman that I'm talking with now is Joanne Lublin. Um, Joanne is the management news editor for the Wall Street Journal and author of Earning It, Hard-Won Lessons from Trailblazing Women at the Top of the Business World. So I want to come back to this marriage contract. Yes, there was another interesting feature to it, probably more interesting than the chores, which was we were both journalists, and he had moved out to California to follow me because I had started work for the Wall Street Journal after getting a master's degree at Stanford. And we put in the contract that we would alternate whose career took priority. We didn't set any time frame for that, but basically, you know, we were going to take turns as who decided where we, what part of the world we lived in. So since he had followed me to California, the next move was his. This is um, a kind of partnering mm-hmm. that. Um, was highly unusual when you two got married. What year was this, if you don't mind my asking? It was 1972. Okay. So the world was just beginning to change and wake up and have dialogue about this. But it was very hard for, you know, other people to accept some of these things that we were doing, like keeping my name. And I explained to my parents, you know, why I was keeping my name. I was established professionally. I didn't feel I could be one person at work and somebody else when I came home. My husband also, well, my husband-to-be, also was not too thrilled about this. But I thought my parents understood until we came back east for the wedding, and my mother said, oh, here are your thank you notes. And it was with his last name on them. And I said, Mom, I'm not taking Mike's last name. And she said, well, what should I do with 200 thank you notes? I said, you got scratch paper for the next 10 years. (laughs) Um, I so appreciate this. Somebody also, I kept my own name, gave my daughter my own name. Um, Fortunately, this was, you know, 30 years later. So my parents still sort of rolled their eyes. Did they really? I think, no. To be fair, I think my mother was enormously proud. I think my father loved that his name was going to live on. At that point, my brother was living the high life and who knew if he was going to have kids or not. Um, And I think uh, I know that my... Uh, husband's mother had a hard time with it. I'm sure. But um, I, I felt grateful that I had a partner who was not invalidated by this and instead saw it as one of his um, most overt feminist moves. How did you find a partner in 1972 that shared this this equal view of your lives together? Well, I think if you find a life partner who you truly love and adore and the feeling is mutual, then you want to do things that make the partner happy. So is that also part of what's behind the way that you took turns? Because you talk about this, right. not only as this an amazing dimension of your relationship, but also as... He's an amazing man. <laughs> I can tell you really do adore him. Um, 
but that it sh- gives us a really great model for dual career couples where who are equally talent and ambitious who are being pursuing and being thrown into amazing opportunities that often could actually rip the two of them apart because they're so demanding. Well, and the thing is that there are several really good examples of this in the book. I know you're fixated on my relationship with my husband, (laughs) but we should talk about some of the women who struggled with this too. Meg Whitman okay, had a fabulous career going for her at Disney. She was head of a major business unit. She was on a fast track. In fact, later was in the running briefly for chief executive, even after she had left the company. Mm -hmm. Her husband's a neurosurgeon. They're living in Southern California, and he gets the dream job to go to, you know, the Boston area, to a prestigious medical school and hospital. And she talks in the book about going in tears into her boss's office, because Disney had nothing in Boston, to say that she had to resign because this was, you know, the opportunity of a lifetime for her husband. Later, when she gets offered the opportunity to become CEO of eBay, which at that point is a startup that nobody ever heard of, and they're living in Boston, she doesn't even want to go interview for the job. It's back in California. What's her husband going to do? And he encouraged her to go interview. That's the critical point. Is that because we're accustomed, we know, and many of us live this every day, where our partners' careers may be tugging against ours. But it's fascinating to see that at the heart of that partnership is a mutuality of wanting what's best for the other one and the other one to achieve their goals. So, P.S., she takes the eBay job, becomes the first female billionaire in high tech. Her husband gets a hugely important job at Stanford where he remains today. So it sounds like all's well that ended well there. At least in that situation. But there are several other women in the book whose marriages did not survive. No. because And can you say briefly how much of that had to do with the tug of two careers and how much of it was the way that you navigate those things? I think it probably had a little to do with both. I didn't go there with great depth, I have to admit. I can respect that. Um, with the the little bit of time we have before the break, um, for the two of you, you actually negotiated a strict policy of taking turns. Well, that was at least what the contract <laughs> said, right? But, you know, what you say is your intentions and what is reality is not always the same. So he follows me to California. Then he wanted to go back to grad school, so I followed him to Chicago I went to the Wall Street Journal and said, I want to stay with the Wall Street Journal. My husband's been admitted to graduate school in Michigan and Chicago. I would take a transfer to either bureau, and he would go to whatever, you know, bureau you transfer me to. So they offered me a transfer to the Chicago bureau, and he went back to grad school there. But the next move was mine, and it was to Washington, and then after that, it should have been his turn again, but he ended up following me a second time. So um, this has been uh, Women at Work talking with Joanne Lublin, management news editor for The Wall Street Journal and author of Earning It, Hard-Won Lessons from Trailblazing Women at the Top of the Business World. We'll be back after the short break to talk more about how women gained power, made their way up the ladder, and actually wound up happy on the other side. We'll be back in a minute. 
You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today we are talking about earning it. Joanne Lublin's fabulous new book, Hard Won Lessons from Trailblazing Women at the Top of the Business World. And I'm also particularly excited because Joanne is here with us in the Wharton studio today. So, Joanne, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you again for having me. So, One of the things, there were so many things in this book that really spoke to me. One of them that really got my attention was you keep talking about, um, I'm calling them the assumptions, things that um, men assume about women, women assume about themselves, and I'd like to explore them a little bit. And one of them was um, what you do in this moment when you walk into a room. You are the CEO, but people don't assume that you are. Talk a little bit about why that happens and also some advice you give for how to handle that. Well, it all gets back to this thing called unconscious bias. We assume that men will operate and act a certain way. We assume that women will operate and act a certain way. And we're also not very numerous in the CEO's (laughs) position. So, you know, you can't really blame men for presuming that this woman who just walked in the door is not the CEO. But it did end up creating some rather funny experiences for some of the CEOs that I interviewed where they, in one case, she was in the process of taking the company public, where she was the chief executive, and they brought in an investment banking firm that wanted to have the the job, that wanted to represent them, where the investment bankers had not done their homework, which seems a bit strange. (laughs) And just before the meeting starts, one of the investment bankers turns to her and says, sweetie, could you get me a Diet Coke? Sweetie. Or something. Right. (laughs) And so she, you know, is very unflappable, walks out of the room, brings him back the Diet Coke and said, hi, I'm Penny. I'm the CEO. (laughs) I'm guessing he never did that again. But I'm also guessing. He probably also didn't get the work, (laughs) which at the end of the day, frankly, is the most important thing, I think, that women have to recognize. You have a lot more power than you think you do. Because mm-hmm. and this is the second time you shared it with us, just in this brief conversation, that in that moment it may feel like you've lost face or lost power. Um, but I actually, I mean, I found personally when you're underestimated, it, in a way, it gives you the upper hand. And in fact, when I was doing this interview with Penny, which was in 2015 when I reported the book, I said, okay, but that was like seven or eight years ago or ten years ago. That doesn't like still happen today. She said, no, actually it does. And she said, yesterday we had a potential new client come to the office. And again, you know, they didn't really kind of know who was what in this relatively small startup where she was then CEO. And so when the customers, you know, were waiting in the meeting room, she entered the meeting room flanked by her two lieutenants and did her usual number. She extended her hand and said, hi, I'm Penny. I'm the CEO. She didn't wait for them to shake hands with one of her male colleagues on the presumption that she was one of their handy-dandy helpers. Because aside from the way that it um, and that happened the day before I, I interviewed her. <laughs> Aside from the way that it establishes her power, it also facilitates what is the ultimate goal of doing business together by pe- keeping the awkward and negative things out of the room. 
men don't want to be embarrassed any more than, than women do. And it's interesting, some of the emails I've started getting from men who've read the book, who frankly are embarrassed that they did not recognize all the things that women their age have had to go through. You note it in the book. Men want to do the right thing. They Absolutely. just don't always know what it is. Or they don't recognize when they're you know, exhibiting unconscious bias. Women don't always recognize it either. We all, it's the way we navigate reality. We all have to have certain assumptions about what we're seeing. If we didn't think that was a tree and we thought it was a shadow, we would walk through it rather than around it. Okay? When, when you see a woman in a meeting room who doesn't look like she's important or is in charge, you assume she's a, a helper. There was a really great example in the book of the youngest woman I interviewed, who is the co-founder and, and co-CEO of her company, gets invited to a conference of only CEOs that had been bankrolled by the venture capital firm. So it's dozens and dozens of CEOs, but she's the only woman. And before the meeting is ready to get underway, she gets asked five different times for things like, where do I check in? Can you get me a bottle of water? Where's the men's room? And by the fifth time, it finally occurs to her that they think she's one of the little helpers. Now, there are ways that we actually can um, make this worse for ourselves. I had an experience where I was, I guess, um, in my early 40s. I was the dean of an art school. It's our annual fundraising event. I had been encouraged to wear a great black dress. I wore a great black dress. And I'm at the event. And people are asking me, who am I there with? Like, I look like someone's date and not like the dean. And I realized that while my women colleagues, and I had checked first, I had done that like nervous girl thing of, is this right? Does this look okay? They're like, oh, it's great. It's great. Um, I wasn't presenting myself. And it, there's a particular challenge of doing it, I think, in formal attire where you don't want to look like like my grandmother, even though she was kind of fabulous, um, of how you present an air of authority and elegance in those kinds of occasions. So what was wrong with your appearance? Um, <laughs> it was a halter top dress. It was too, I, I looked like I was going, I could have gone dancing. It was like I once heard somebody from um, Ketchum put out a memo that like, if you look like you're going to the beach today, leave, go to the beach, but we're counting it as one of your personal days. And that um, had I dressed slightly more modestly in something that connoted a little more power, I might have been not had that same experience in the interaction because it wasn't just that I was dressed like I was at a party. I'm a young woman. Well, and certainly was compared to my peers at the time in that role. And you talk, um, I thought you did a beautiful job in the book of talking about how do you have executive presence. And the best part of that chapter, I thought, was the very last bullet. At the end of each of these chapters, there are leadership lessons. And this one came from Denise Morrison, who is the chief executive of Campbell Soup, first woman ever to run that company. And here's what that lesson said. Do not get noticed for the wrong reasons such as excessive cleavage or noisy metal jewelry. Presenting yourself professionally makes a difference. If you're not crisply dressed, and here's what Denise said, quote, and you're standing next to the guy in the crisp suit, you don't stand a chance. And then she added, people are human. They're going to respond to packaging. Exactly. Well, who knows that better than Campbell's suit? <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. But so one of the things in that whole chapter um, that I also really saw, I love that you presented it in a different light than we've talked about it before, is uh, heels of all things. 
Absolutely. Because, and I've had both experiences where um, I, and I said this on a show a couple of weeks ago, that being um, effective at work requires that we're comfortable. Mm-hmm. And when we put on shoes because it's what seems fashion forward and we can't walk, we're really hurting ourselves. Right. Um, partly because we don't go and engage and we don't stand with our full presence and our full powers. But there's another side to this, which is the power that you get from looking someone in the eye when you stand up and shake their hand. Exactly. And what I was surprised by was the number of women who were five feet seven or taller. <clears throat> and there were quite a few like that. But who also continue to wear high heels because they wanted to be able to look men in the eye. And it does change the dynamic. <laughs> Although, um, I forgot who it was, but she's petite, like 5'1". Mm-hmm. And she said she just acts tall. She thinks she's tall. and so she's a chief executive. <laughs> yes. But that, so one part of it is how do we conjure our own power, but also recognizing that all of these elements that sometimes we think of as frivolous can really have a huge impact on how we come across, how we perceive, how we're perceived, and the dynamic that follows. But there are also a lot of women who say, why should I have to worry about this when the men don't? And what's your answer to that? The answer is because they only wear the same thing. It's true. They're stuck in a uniform or freed by their uniform, depending (laughs) on how you look at it. Um, In this, you also talked about gravitas. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk to us a little bit about what that term means and how you – do you conjure it? Do you grow into it? Well, the term gravitas is kind of an extension of executive presence. It's the idea not only that you look the part, know the part, but you act the part. So it's not just how you dressed up that day. No. It, and <laughs> part of what you included in that list that I thought was wonderful is it's reflecting your confidence under fire, um, your decisiveness, your integrity. Um, and, also- and the fact that you don't have to rely on PowerPoints to show you know your stuff. Ginny Rometty, who's the chief executive of IBM, stopped using PowerPoints about 20 years ago. She felt they were a crutch. She doesn't let anybody who reports to her use PowerPoint. If you don't know your stuff well enough to come in here and talk to the board of directors about it, go back to your desk. Then do you belong in front of the board of directors? Exactly. Um, You also talk, though, about body language and voice and the importance of gaining control over those things. Um, Any of the women that you talked to, was that a struggle that they had along the way? Well, I think... A number of them struggled with just the idea of public speaking, of going in front of large groups, particularly male-dominated groups. Um, But as they matured in their careers, they either got coaching or they got experience or they got mentors who helped them overcome sort of the nervous Nellies over public speaking. I don't think anybody becomes a successful senior executive without having gravitas and executive presence. And part of that involves knowing what to say when. Women tend to answer or end their sentences with an upward lilt. I think it's a good idea, don't don't you? You think we engage in upspeak? It's called upspeak, exactly. Um, the, I'm talking with Joanne Lublin, who's the management news editor for The Wall Street Journal and author of Earning It, Hard-Won Lessons from Trailblazing Women at the Top of the Business World. And she's in our Wharton studio today with us, um, which makes this particularly exciting. So in how talk, I want to come back to how women speak and how women engage in meetings. One of the other stories you were talking about in 
And I put it under that category of how do you hold on to your power in a benevolent way that's really about facilitating success. Um, was about a dynamic in the boardroom of how long do you listen for? When do you speak up? When's the right time to engage? So by the time you're in a boardroom, you've most likely already become a CEO. You've been in leadership roles. Or some kind of a high-level position. Right. Um, but it's still a fraught environment where you have to learn the ropes all over again. Right. Um, share with me a little bit about how, what's the, the best way to navigate that, and what are the clues that you can follow while you're there? Well, I think some of the women in this book who have been the most successful as corporate board members did a heck of a lot of homework before going to their first board meeting. And that included perhaps going out to dinner or having a coffee with some of the key board members to understand the dynamics of who are the key players, as well as doing visits of the key sites of the, of the company. You always, unfortunately, as a woman, have to be over-prepared, not under-prepared. And to the extent, you know, as a board member, you know your stuff, just like as an executive, then you're going to know when to put your two cents in and when not to. I think, again, too often women hold back, especially when they're new to a situation, or they don't hold back and then their credit is stolen for some suggestion that they've made. They bring up an idea, everybody nods, and a half hour later, Jim at the table comes up with the same idea and they give him the credit. To the extent there is more than one woman sitting at that table, then they tend to support each other to a greater degree. So Jessica Bennett, who wrote the fabulous Feminist Fight Club, called them bro-propriators when they're taking your credit. But um, I think the particularly important thing that you're noting is how this unfolds afterwards. And um, how is it that you learn when to step in and when to how to let the conversation unfold and to come in at the right time so that you're not um, out there on a limb by yourself. Right. Um, and that you also haven't been passive during decision making. I think it gets back to the point I was just making, which is knowing kind of what the hot button issues are. Mm -hmm. Also knowing what it is that you bring to the party. Also knowing whether you've been there long enough, whether it's on that executive team or that corporate board, that you've got cred, that you've got credibility. So there was a great story in here about a woman who went on the board of an aerospace manufacturer and how she got credibility. But let's not tell all the <laughs> we stories. We won't tell all the stories. Um, in... Um, Getting that credibility on the board, it also connects to this idea of why do you join a board and not to mm -hmm. be what you called the golden skirt. Right. Tell me what the golden skirt is and why that's really not good for your career. Well, I think the term actually emerged in Norway when they put in a law requiring that boards be a certain percentage of, of women, a much higher percentage than that they had had ever before. And I actually went to Norway the month before that law took effect. And it was a very draconian law. If you mm -hmm. didn't comply, you were basically out of business. And what was happening is that the same women over and over again were getting this, the multiple offers. There were women who were being offered seats on 40 or 50 boards. And so the, the phrase kind of golden skirt means you're getting picked, at least in the Norway context, because you're a woman. Um, I, I think women in this country are very sensitive to the fact that women are greatly underrepresented in, mm -hmm. in major companies' boardrooms, 
But they're also very sensitive to the fact that they want to be picked for their expertise, not for their gender. And frankly, I think we're we're past the the point of, of boards looking to put women or people of color on the board just to check a box. I wonder though, because we've heard um, the the discussion from both sides, where on one hand we hear from, um, and I've heard this from the Wharton alumni, um, the ones who are senior in their careers, they're at uh, those critical pivot points where they're really desirable to boards. And they're actually guarding appropriately against the boards that are trying to remain diverse or diversify and are pulling them in um, if it's just for gender. And there are others who have said, who have given advice that um, if you're at a position in your career where you're ready to be on a board and you want to be on a board, as long as it's one where you're comfortable with the responsibilities that you're taking, an opportunity is still an opportunity. And if you're getting it because of gender, if it's still something you want to do, take it. I wouldn't do it under those circumstances. And again, there's a great story in the book about how Denise Morrison, the, the CEO of Campbell Soup, got her first corporate board seat. People didn't want to put her on a board because she wasn't a CEO of an entire company. And that sort of narrow-minded thinking, frankly, still exists in a lot of companies today. So there is that um, the companies are exhibiting a narrow-minded thinking um, that sometimes also can, to them, going back to what are our biases and how do we frame our decisions, a risk aversion. This person doesn't look like the other people I know who do this. But we also know that the women who have earned it, have all had to tackle their own risk aversion at different points. Absolutely. What have you seen as kind of the recurring themes amongst them in what's the right way to take a risk? The right way to take a risk is to take a calculated risk. Let's not just all run like lemmings off the edge of the cliff here. Let's make sure there's a safety net below there. The safety net could be the fact that someone's got your back. Or it could be the fact that you're being given adequate resources, whether it's people or money, to achieve this high-risk situation and have it come to fruition. Or it could be that you're getting a get-out-of-jail-free mm-hmm. card, which is what happened with Ellen Coleman, the former CEO of DuPont. Was that the one where if it didn't work, she could go back to her old role? Well, it wasn't that she could go back to her old role. The CEO asked her to start a totally new business in a completely new area for the company and said to her, if after six months this really doesn't take off, I will give you a lateral move to something comparable to what you'd had before. Obviously, her old job was being filled. And that's also a testimony to how she knew to ask for protection going into it. Well, again... What you don't ask for, you don't get. And so I tried to follow my own advice recently. I was asked by Money Magazine to do a freelance piece for their website on the pay chapter, Mm -hmm. where that is a very strong theme, that if you don't ask for what you deserve, you're not going to get paid what you deserve. So in being asked to freelance this piece, I had the temerity to ask if I would get paid for it. My publisher was aghast because obviously this was going to be a free publicity of the book. And I said, I realize that, but I have to be true to my own advice that I'm giving in this (laughs) book. And, you know, what could be the worst possible thing? You know, they're going to say, we don't want your article because you've asked for money. No. Right. The worst possible thing could be, no, we don't pay for it. And then you still do it if you you know, want the publicity for your book. So that's what happened. <laughs> um, so along the lines of um, asking for what you want, 
Um, sometimes And what you deserve. You're not going to always get what you want. Okay, so now let's talk about how you calculate what you deserve. Um, uh, I was having dinner with some friends recently, and we were recognizing that uh, several of the women at the table um, were really underpaid compared to their male, male peers. And we were talking about how you approach this um, with HR, with your organization. What can, can you do anything about it? What can you do about it? And one of them said, well, you know, I don't think I can do anything because the people who make more than me are men who support their families. Should that be a criteria? I sure hope not. Me. Um, what, what century did you have this day? <laughs> exactly. But that's the thing that is so resonant about this book. Mm-hmm. You would think that these battles and these issues would not be on the table anymore. They are still on the table. The fact that, that men use foul language in the workplace and sexual you know, double entendres in front of women all the time, particularly in Wall Street, is still a fact of life today. It just boggles the mind. And frankly, until more women get into positions of power Mm -hmm. at the top of the house in companies, it will be a fact of life. This was a um, thing that was kind of vibrating in me as I read the book, because you're telling stories of women that are ranging from the 70s all the way up to today. Correct. And I wanted to... I so wanted to be able to parse it out and say, well, those things happened then because that was then. But no, they're happening now, too. And who, who would have thought we have had all these sexual harassment scandals erupt this year and have it become part of the presidential campaign and, and gender pay equity being, you know, on the top of the news day after day, week after week? And these were things that when I turned on the television as a child— were being discussed and in the news as if they, there were amendments. These things were going to be solved and fixed. And 40, 50 years later, they're still just as pressing. In coming to this issue of how men talk about women, um, what can women do when they're exposed to it? How do you suggest women handle it when they realize it's going on around them? Well, again, I think the easy way out is the way that most of us have always taken, which is to, to turn a blind eye. And I was recently sent a essay that was posted on social media by a 26-year-old woman who worked on Wall Street for two years as an analyst and basically turned a deaf ear to comments such as she was bending down to get something from her desk and a man walked by and said, that's how I like to see blondes on their knees. Oh, my God. Okay, so this happened, you know, within the last two or three years. She's now working in a domestic abuse crisis agency in San Francisco and has realized, and this is why she wrote this essay and posted it on social media, that words actually can hurt and words actually can lead to actions. And she believes that many of these victims of domestic abuse probably got horribly treated verbally before they were physically abused. And that was the point of her essay. As women, you can't just walk away from that kind of language because it's part of some deeper hurt, deeper misunderstanding. And I thought the Mary Barra story was really relevant. Yes, totally. And there was also a marvelous quote from Jennifer Bahal, 
mm-hmm. I think you say her name. She's a management researcher and an expert on gender and, exp- and organizations. And she said, sexual harassment primarily targeted at women who step out of place by having masculine characteristics or what might be referred to as, quote, uppity women. These suggest that sexual harassment is driven not out of desire for women who meet feminine ideals, but out of a desire to punish those who violate them. Which is why we can't put up with it. But can we talk about the Mary Barra story? Sure, please do. So she's now the CEO of General Motors, but early in her career was working in a GM plant and was being wolf-whistled by one particular hourly employee as she walked around. And again, the normal response would be just ignore it. But she went up to him and said, what are you trying to do? And he said, "Uh, communicate? And she said, great, let's communicate. And basically, they talked to each other as one human being to another. They actually became very close colleagues. And the wolf whistles, which had been, you know, not unheard of when she would walk around that plant, disappeared. But coming full circle, it's another testimony to where by reaching out, and bringing empathy to the table. Absolutely. You can actually disarm people and bring them in as your colleagues and friends. And the whole idea is to make it a win-win situation. So that everybody's succeeding in this process. And nobody feels like they're being browbeaten, punished, or somehow cast out for what they said. And that instead of humiliating each other, we're empowering each other Absolutely. out of mutual respect. Absolutely. Joanne, I'm so thrilled and honored that you joined me on the show today, and I'm particularly grateful for the book. I loved it, and it's going to be in everybody's uh, holiday packages this year. Oh, that's wonderful, Laura. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us. I'd also like to thank my producer, Patty Hall, my engineer, Dion Simkin, and Allie Freed. Once again, fabulous research. Thank you. Um, Our schedule of replays can be found on the SiriusXM website. That's www.siriusxm.com backslash business radio. Thank you so much for listening to us here on Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on SiriusXM 111. I'm Laura Zarrow, and I'll look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks so much. 